Welcome to another episode of the Childhood Evolved Podcast. I'm your host, Teacher Alex. As I say at the beginning of every episode, it wasn't that long ago in our history as human beings that the state of childhood wasn't seen or acknowledged or considered to exist at all by anyone. And there were visionaries, people that had an idea about a different possible future and fought to bring that vision into reality. And they kept going, putting one foot in front of the other, for all these years, and here we are today, continuing this history and this tradition, which is what this podcast is all about, bringing up topics for a deeper understanding, bringing them into the light, and the conversations that can unfold from the questions provide more insight and a deeper level of understanding than answers alone would. And in fact, instead of answers, what I find is we often come up with more questions. So I just want to thank you for being with us today to listen. And if you're a long-time listener, again, I'd appreciate your rating and your review of the show if you haven't done so already on whatever platform you're using to listen to the podcast. This just helps the audience grow even more. And please, if you haven't done so already, check out my Patreon account at patreon.com slash childhoodevolved. And I'll put that link in the show notes. You can go on to my Patreon account to get even more information about getting more involved in the podcast. So it's 2020 now, and I want to say welcome back to everyone that may have been wondering where I've been for the last couple months. I know it's been longer than usual since I've posted up an episode. You know, it was the holidays and traveling and all of that, and just getting back in the swing of things and getting ready to type a new episode up so I can record it. And what's been on my mind really this whole time, I've been tossing around this idea of attention span, and I wanted to talk to you about the importance of attention span because it it has relevance to so many different areas of our life, even things that maybe we weren't thinking of or considering before. And so we'll kind of get into that today. What do I mean by attention span? It really means attending to one thing for an extended period of time. And more importantly, it means not attending to all the other things you could be in that moment. The importance of this has been true for all of human history, of course, and it's becoming even more, I guess, hard today with all the stimuli. It's, it's a hyper-stimulating world that we live in. There's so much information around us at all times. And so maintaining attention span is at the same time more important than ever and also harder than ever. And that gives us an opportunity to develop it even stronger than maybe it's ever been. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. People talk a lot about paying attention, especially with children. They'll say, pay attention. And often without being mindful of the fact that this phrase pay attention may actually hold very little meaning for children, especially the preschoolers that I work with. They need to be taught how to pay attention and in a respectful, kind way. So for example, when we sit in our circle time at school, we have a conversation about why we're in a circle and it's so that everyone can see each other's face instead of people being kind of in a random group where we can't even see who's talking or know who's talking. And from time to time, we have reminders about looking at the person who's talking, and that's teaching the concept of paying attention. And it's not to imply that there's some sort of rigidity in my circle times where children have to be staring at the person speaking at all times. 
It's not that. That wouldn't be kind. That wouldn't be realistic. It, it more so comes up when children are placing their entire attention span on something else, something very distracting, such as a conversation with someone in a different part of the room or playing, things like that. So what I find is that children can actually attend better to either what I'm saying or to what another child is saying if there's something in their hands, something for them to do with their hands physically. And you know, it's the children, when we do a story time, and it is just kind of a pack or a group of children on the rug with a teacher sitting in a chair and reading, the children who are kind of rolling around in the rug in the back of the group and seem to be the most checked out are often and even usually the ones who are hearing every word and they'll have questions and they'll have comments at the end of the book or if the teacher stops and pauses to involve the children as, you know, good teachers tend to do, especially when they're reading. So when adults try to dictate too much of how children will pay attention in their own unique way, it can actually make it harder for children to pay attention. So how do we support the development of attention span in children and for ourselves? Because it's really just critically important that we do so. And that's because attention span has so many benefits when it is developed, starting from childhood and going all throughout our lives. Because as adults, if we can control where our mind wanders, we can help ourselves out in areas like anxiety, depression, overthinking, things like that often come down to using our attention span. Because we can say, oh, I'm going to let that go, or I'm not going to think about that or whatever. But that's so much easier said than done, right? If we really want to put that into practice, we need an attention span. We need that muscle, that strong muscle to actually do that. And so we start this development in childhood. And that's one of the things that it's going to become very important for later on in life. And really right from the beginning, and I, I did a whole episode on school readiness. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go back and listen to that. But if you are thinking about school readiness, and it is important to you, which it is to many, you know, most parents, the most important thing actually is not having a pre-existent content knowledge, ABCs or, or writing or any of that. Really, the most important thing is to be able to sit and attend to the teacher. And often on the show, I've said the most important thing is to have emotional regulation. And that's because it helps you regulate your behavior. And that's primarily it helps you sit still and listen. It's not the best part of our educational system in America, but it, it's the reality. It's how it works. And so if you have that attention span, you're going to have much smoother sailing than if it's not developed and you don't want to sit in your chair and, and listen to the teacher who's talking and teaching and instructions and all of that. So if you're looking forward to your child starting kindergarten and you're having worry about academics or readiness or any of that, so much of it comes down to attention span where they can have all that other stuff they can be reading and writing and be, you know, little geniuses. If they're not going to sit in the chair and listen to the teacher, it's just not going to go very well. And opposite, like they don't have to know anything. But if they're going to come in and sit and listen to the teacher, they're going to learn. That's what school is for. That's the teacher's job. So also being able to become a reader, books require paying a lot of attention. And often we have to invest our attention in the book for a while before it pays off. The first few pages or chapters of a book, you know, might not be the most exciting part. When we really invest and get halfway through the book and towards the end, it's when we get the kind of reward and the payoff of the ending and the mysteries getting solved, or if it's nonfiction, kind of mastering the content, things like that. And if children have been spending a lot of time watching TV, TV is completely passive and you just sit back 
and it just kind of happens so you don't need an attention span or at least not one anywhere nearly near as well developed as to be a reader so you need an attention span to be a reader and at the same time being a reader is going to help build your attention span so there's that if you want your child to be able to better attend to your instructions and follow through or to be able to you know quote listen to the teacher that means actually listening first of all being able to attend and hear what's being said and not be distracted a lot of times when you think a child is kind of being defiant or willful or whatever maybe it's because they actually didn't really pay attention to what you said and they're attending to something else something's distracting them being able to in, in the same way being able to engage with their peers especially in games because they may have to have turn taking and wait their turn or wait for a certain material that, that they want and also in games and play children have to inhibit impulses and delay gratification all the time maybe they're playing a superhero game and they don't get to be the character they want it to be or they have to accept that there's two of the same character which can be hard this is tied into attention span because it's all a part of executive function which is developing all throughout early childhood and really executive function is developing into the mid to late 20s so executive function capacities include attention span as well as delay of gratification inhibiting impulses being cognitively flexible building any one of these areas is going to almost all the time naturally involve the others and the same type of tasks that we do to build one it's going to promote the area as a whole much of the time and if you kind of think reflectively about your own life there's probably areas where you could benefit from an increased attention span for yourself whether it's at work whether it's in a relationship or in a social group church activities things like that and if you think about yourself and how to support the development of your attention span it might lead to some insight of things that you could make a small change for developing your children's attention span even more and it's kind of easy to think about like what the opposite is or what things that are not good for attention span kind of spring to mind really easily right like i was on a plane recently for the holidays and i just it was a long flight like six hours something like that and i had brought my knitting i was trying to get all my knitting done for christmas so and time kind of flew it was weird just because i was so zoned in on the knitting and next thing i knew the flight was over but i did notice the person kind of opposite to me across the aisle was watching netflix for the entire flight which is a pretty normal typical thing um, that people do on airplanes right and i even on the way back watched some netflix myself because number one the knitting was done and number two i didn't know you could actually download shows and then watch them offline didn't know that probably didn't need to know that because then it enabled me to download some stuff and instead of reading my books as i had planned um, but the knitting was done and i felt like i deserved a little reward so anyway i'm watching this woman opposite me watching netflix the whole time and then the plane landed and i just noticed she kind of freaked out that the shades were down and i don't think she had any idea that we were about to land and i guess in that situation that it feels like the plane's crashing or something and so her stuff just kind of goes you know everywhere and she's clearly scared but she continues to watch the netflix and then as soon as we land you know there's that awkward period where everyone kind of stands up and you can't even stand all the way up in the plane because there's no room everyone's waiting for the door to open and it might be a while so she's got her phone out and not trying to pay attention to other people, but it's hard not to notice 
the scrolling through of the phone and then these little Instagram video clips coming up. And like we all do, most of us do from time to time, like the phone goes back in the pocket and it's like three seconds past and the phone's back out. You think of something else that you need to occupy yourself because it's so hard to just stand in that line and wait and pay attention to our breathing or our own thoughts or what's going on around us when we're so used to these phones kind of doing it for us. So the phone's back out and it's just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And that's the thing about screens is they regulate our attention for us. And it can be really great when we're either stressed out and we need to disconnect and relax. We're on a long flight. We want to watch a little TV, whatever. Once in a while, like anything in life, it's, it's nice once in a while. But when this is what we're relying on all the time in our downtime, it can be really hard to regulate our own attention because it is, I think of it like a muscle. And watching TV or a screen, kind of like being in a really nice hot tub. You're so relaxed, everything's great. When you get out of the hot tub, your muscles are all loose. You know, you can't jump right out of a hot tub and pick up a 50 pound weight. Your muscles just aren't going to be able to handle that. And so I've kind of sensed a connection in my life with anxiety because I struggle with anxiety and sometimes it's really nice to watch you know an old bunch of tv shows funny funny tv shows and what I've noticed is when you turn the tv off it's so much harder to then exist when you've had a like a, a long tv session versus if I just came home from work and was reading books and doing things managing my own attention it's kind of like I'm keeping those muscles strong the whole time and, you know, I'm regulating my feelings as well. I'm, I'm processing what I'm reading and doing a lot more of the work myself. When we're watching TV, we're kind of just feeling what is directed to us on the screen. If it's a comedy, we're laughing. If it's a drama, maybe we're sad. And so we don't have to work very hard to think about what we want to think about, what we want to feel. It just kind of happens. In a similar way, I've heard parents often remark that children kind of go wild after their screen time has ended, after the show's over, or even during the commercial breaks. And I've seen this as well, and I think it's similar. Like Children haven't used that muscle of regulating their attention for this longer period of time, and then it's just not there for them, and they're kind of bouncing off the walls. And especially with children, they're still developing this muscle on a daily basis, so it's even more important for them to have opportunities to do that. And there's even more of an effect, I think, when we see that they haven't been regulating their own attention. And so I recently heard someone refer to that as screen burn, and I just loved that word, and it kind of stuck in my brain. Um, screen burn. that You get screen burn when you've watched for too long, and it's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with my attention and my time now without the TV to fill that? So of course, there's a time and a place to be relaxed, and children need as much time as possible practicing and exercising these mental muscles as they develop. If they spend too much time watching screens, as I noted before, books may not be as interesting later on. Screens change every second or two, whereas books are its the same thing. It's the same page until you turn it. Even if it's a picture book, nothing's changing, nothing's moving. So the more screens children have been looking at, the harder it can be to sell them on a book. And books are actually a great way to develop those regulatory capacities. They're far less passive. A lot of work is required on the part of the reader. Even if you're reading to your child, they're sitting and listening to you and looking at the pictures and perhaps making a connection that the text is where the words come from. You're not just making it up or inferring it from the pictures. And from time to time, it's helpful to point out to children, oh, these words tell the story. 
you don't want to be constantly doing stuff like that. It can kind of ruin the fun. But once in a while, it's good to point out to children, really at any age, at any pre-reading age, that the message comes from the text and, ha and show them how that's distinct from the picture. And in the teaching field, we call that concepts of print. So incorporating more reading into your life will give you better control of your attention, of what thoughts you want to entertain, and what feelings, how you're going to regulate what feelings that come up. And your emotions will become more regulated, and it'll allow your behaviors to become more regulated as well. So this is true for all of us who want to be better in control of our own attention. Incorporating more reading and less screen time into your own daily routine is also great role modeling for your children. So I'm a, f a fan of the good old-fashioned paper physical book, and I get a physical newspaper to my door every day. And you can say a lot for Kindles and e-readers and reading news online, all of that. It's good for the environment, it's cheaper, and th there's a lot of benefits for sure. doesn't work as well for me as I really like to hold that book in my hands. There's no possibility for distraction. I'm not going to go check my text or... If I'm on Kindle, it's like there's 20 books or 40 books downloaded. Maybe I shouldn't be reading this when I start to overthink it and change the book I'm reading. But if I've already gotten all the way into my couch or bed with my book or I'm at Starbucks with one book, it's kind of like, well, this is what I have to read or this is what I took in the car to me to work today. So there's that. I like to flip back and forth between pages and I highlight and I write notes in my books quite a bit. So if you're modeling reading for your child, you might want to consider all of that, whether you think it might be more effective for them to see with an actual book, or at the very least, one of these like dedicated e-readers. It's a Kindle or a Nook, and that's all it does. Because if you are sitting with an iPad or a laptop or a phone, you know, you could be doing anything. And at school, I do sometimes load up a Kindle book on my laptop because at rest time, because at rest time, we're helping the children fall asleep, which usually like shaking their bed or whatever requires two hands. So I can load up a book on my laptop and just sit it in my lap and I don't have to hold the book or anything. But the children, I notice they're, they're trying to look at the screen and they ask what I'm doing and all this. And so it's, I can't always do that if they're <laughs> distractible. And in their minds, I'm just on a computer or a screen. They have no idea. It's reading. So if I can actually bring a book out, they just kind of take note of it with their eyes and they don't ask as many questions I've noticed with the books. So sometimes I have the book in my lap and I take one of their shoes to hold the page open and that definitely gets their attention because they're like what are you doing with my shoe you're going to give it back it can be very um, upsetting at times so you got to know whose shoe you're stealing I guess anyway way off topic there's an author named Cal Newport who's done a lot of research and he's written a few books kind of in related areas one of my favorites is called Deep Work. So that's Deep Work by Cal Newport. And I'll stick that in the show notes as well. And it's all about the ways that our attention is fragmented at work. It's a really, really cool book. And he makes the case that when our attention span is so fragmented, the quality of our work suffers a lot. And one of the biggest examples in the book is like this thing of checking emails repeatedly all day long. And it's kind of like something we do if we're writing at work. And I do have to write quite a bit at work, documentation and things conference forms for children so it's kind of cool to like check your email it gives you a little mental break and then you can switch back to your writing and what he says in the book is he cites this research that there's this cognitive residue that you've now put something different into your attention and you're not deep anymore and when you go back to your work it can take up to like i think he said 15 or 20 minutes to really get that 
full, deep focus back. And that's where your best work is going to occur is when you're super focused. So checking email back and forth or getting interrupted by coworkers or whatever continues to interrupt your attention span. And maybe you never even get to that deep place. And if you want to know more about that, I really recommend that book. It's, it's a great book, very informative. And for me, you know, teaching naturally is just kind of fragmented attention. We're paying attention to a thousand things at once. So I didn't apply it so much at work, but I have, I've applied it a lot in my personal life with focusing on one thing, coming home and reading and knowing, and I hadn't thought about this before, but knowing that it can take 10 to 20 minutes to really get in the zone. So if you pick up a book and you're feeling kind of anxious or unsettled and you give it 10 minutes and you just decide to go for a walk or something instead or put the TV on, it may not be the book. It may just be the fact that you have to invest more time for your mind to settle and for your mind to kind of accept, oh, this is what we're doing right now. We're doing one thing, nothing else is happening, and it can kind of hone in on that. I found in my own life, meditation is also a really good way to hone the attention management skill. I've been going to this new meditation studio in Santa Monica, and of course, I get in the line for the bathroom before class, sometimes after class, and there's only one bathroom, so there's a long line, and there's these different little articles on the wall, and one of them says you should meditate like on an airplane or in the car, these different distracting places, I can't remember the list, because it trains your attention. It's it's easier to meditate when you're in a quiet, calm space, and it's very relaxing, and if you can meditate in a distracting space, you're actually developing your attention span even more. So I've kind of tried, tried to have been working on that. And I think maybe I'm still too new to meditation because it's hard. I tried to do a meditation at work the other day and in this like little staircase, it's right near the sidewalk and the cars are driving and then these guys came and took their cigarette break, which was super difficult for meditation. So that I'm still working on. But there's these different ways you can hone your attention span in a, in a way that works for you. And it's going to help you become more relaxed, mindful, disciplined, and better in control of managing whether you have anxiety, depression, any of that stuff. These things totally, at least they help me manage anxiety when I have control of my attention. So in past episodes, I've talked about Dr. Mark Brackett, who's the director of Yale's Center for Emotional Intelligence, and I've talked about his ruler model, which is a, a way, an acronym for emotional regulation, and it's a really simple and profound way of understanding how this works. And ruler is for everyone, for adults, for children. It's used in schools. It's also used with adults. There's an app, too. I think it's called the Mood Meter that you can download to learn more about ruler. So the first R in ruler is to recognize emotions to recognize even that you're having a feeling. Sometimes we're stressed, we don't know it. We're just acting kind of mindlessly. And if we actually can bring attention to that and say, oh, I'm stressed, it can make a difference and provide a shift. So recognizing is the first R and ruler, then you understand what's happening and give it a label. Label is really important. And when you, when you go to his workshops, or I'm assuming if you read his book, it probably talks a lot about this. I haven't read the book, but I've been to a few of his workshops around labeling. So it's not just happy and sad. It's it's happy, it's excited, it's enthusiastic. There's like hundreds of different emotions and they're all distinct and we can get better and better at labeling exactly what it is we're feeling. Then we can express it. That's the E. Then we can regulate it. That's the final R. So it's recognize, understand, label, 
express and regulate emotions. And when we do that with our emotions, we can then jump to doing that with our behavior. Many of us want to be at that regulated place and we want that for our children. And especially if, if we or they struggle with big emotions, anxiety, depression, anger, things like that. And working these steps of ruler develops emotional intelligence. And so fostering and cultivating this work with children is a huge component of what I do every day as a preschool teacher. And in order to get children to the place where they're engaging with their own feelings and the feelings of others, we need them actively involved in their immediate environment in the real world. And for children, play is the chief way in which this occurs. Children, when they're playing, they have a lot of conflicts, by the way, in case you didn't know. <laughs> conflicts constantly, and that's an ideal place to do that ruler work because it's getting them out of their own perspective and learning about what someone else is thinking and feeling and what their needs are and what they want to do. So as we give children more opportunities to play with one another, to interact face-to-face -face and not behind a screen, they have a much better shot at becoming people who can regulate attention and emotions and then behavior. They don't need to rely as much on screens to entertain them and they may not you know they may not struggle as much with anger anxiety depression things like that or they may be better able to manage them when those things do come up so they may be more comfortable slowing down in their lives and doing nothing from time to time recharging there's like i said many mindful and meditation practices that can support this work there's a lot of different things out there that you can explore for yourself for your children and in that area i'm not really an expert, I'm kind of just starting to learn myself about meditation and mindfulness. So as I learn more, maybe there'll eventually be an episode on that. But a lot of what I think about meditation and mindful work is it's very still. And it might be more age appropriate for older children, where something like movement or yoga could be more appropriate for younger children. But there's simple things we can do right from the beginning, just to encourage children to slow down, to breathe, to exist. And something that I teach my children and my groups when they're calm, because it helps a lot when they're upset or when they're hurt, is the butterfly breath or the ninja breath. And I offer these two different breaths, you know, quote, and they're the same thing, but the children pick which one they connect with more and they see it as that. And all it really is is kind of placing your hands at the center of your chest and then breathing in and opening them like wings and closing them. And you breathe in and you breathe out and you either open and close your wings or you kind of do this ninja pose and open your arms and then bring it back and if i want to take it up a level for the children i'll say oh don't let your hands touch you know you're a butterfly they're going to stick together so but you need to get them really 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 close and that hones their attention in on that seeing how close they can get their hands without touching and i'll say the same for ninjas and, and i'll make up different reasons why they can't touch but it's so important and that can really hone their attention that part of things and the breathing it's, it's really hard to get children to breathe deeper if they're really upset if they're hurt or in a conflict and sometimes this has really saved me the fact that they know this and they're at that you know that place where they're crying and they're really hurt and you can't really talk to them they can't receive your information or tell you anything but i can just start doing the butterfly breath or the ninja breath with them and a few breaths of that can bring them calm enough to start telling me what happened or what they need and so I've come to rely on that quite a bit in my teaching career. And as a teacher, and I'm sure as a parent, one of the best ways you can foster all of this in your own children is to model it yourself. How much time do you spend engaged with the screen? How often are you unplugged? Do children see that books are an everyday part of your life? Do you participate in fun activities that don't involve screens? And, and you know, how do you socialize? 
Back during college, I used to work summers as a camp counselor, and I just absolutely loved it. Being out in the woods, hiking, swimming, being with children, it was awesome. And I remember one day thinking, like, I think I saw a sign that said the camp was a certain number of years old, really old, 50, 100 years, something like that. And I remember thinking, wow, I wonder what it was like back then. And a little while later that day, I was like, hmm, like it had occurred to me, like, well, it should pretty much be exactly the same because there wasn't any cell phones allowed at camp and there was no screens or technology. It was just camp. It was just cabins and and hiking and in woods. So many of the activities were the same year in, year out, summer after summer, boating, canoeing, singing, arts and crafts, socializing with other people. And it was so interesting for me at night because back in those days, I would always just watch TV and fall asleep to it. And it was really hard the first few nights at camp to sleep in the absolute dark with no music, no TV, no light, nothing. And I was super anxious when I was a brand new counselor. I think I even slept with my car keys like in my hand or something the first night because it made me feel like I hadn't escaped. Of course, going to my car would have meant like hiking alone through the dark for like a mile. So that wasn't going to happen at that time. After a while, I actually really enjoyed walking around in the dark because I could kind of find my way around without relying on seeing so much. I could feel where I was. But yeah, the first the first few nights were really hard. And then after a while, I realized I could hang out and just talk to people around the campfire or in the dark. And then sometimes I'd have a book and be reading it with a flashlight, which was really cool. And it, that was kind of, I guess, the start of learning how to slow down for me. Summer camps can be a great break from modern life. There's day camps for younger children, overnights once they get a little older, camps that can accommodate entire families. So I'm a big advocate for camp, <clears throat> and rather than going off on a 20-minute tangent here, I'm just now realizing I should probably make a whole other episode about summer camp, maybe as summer approaches. So look out for that one. But aside from summer, just look for these ways to encourage this growth of attention span in your children every day and how you can model it and embody it in your own life and see it as a challenge for your own growth and for their growth and for just being a healthier, more well-rounded person and family and not needing so many things outside of us to regulate our attention and our emotions for us.